Well, thank you for your welcome this morning. It's very good to be with you again. And Rob has already prayed that God would illumine these words to us, and we come to God's word not counting on our own adequacy, either in what I say or what we think together, but knowing that we can rely on the Holy Spirit to illumine these words to us. So let's come to God's Word now. It's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, which is on the sheet you have, uh, or on your devices. I've lost the page number for the Church Bibles, but it's 762. 762 in the Church Bibles. So I'll read these words and then let's, um, let's come to them together. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What if you went now into King Street in Hammersmith, or any other street perhaps, and asked people there what is the most important thing in your life, most people would say their relationships, their family, their friends, how you relate to other people and how you behave toward them is the key thing in most people's lives. Most people find their lives or think their lives have meaning in relationship with other people. And relationships, we all know, can be difficult. The closest relationships can be the most demanding, they can be the most rewarding, and if they go wrong, they can be the most destructive. 
So how is the Christian to relate to other people? What is the Christian what are the Christian's relationships to look like? And after various instructions about personal lives, these words of Jesus we've just read, now move into the area of our relationships. Faith in Jesus is not just an individual matter. As Christians, we don't live each in a little bubble on our own, never dealing with anybody else. But coming to faith in Christ is something which brings the Christian into the church automatically, <clears throat> into the community of all God's people. <clears throat> Excuse me. And also, we are inevitably part of a wider society. So in these first verses of Matthew 7, these are apparently separate statements of Jesus, but actually they all combine to tell us what our relationships are to look like as Jesus' people within and outside the fellowship of the church. Now this is moving towards the end of what is called the Sermon on the Mount, which is a collected group of Jesus' teachings. And the audience here, as you will recall, is quite a big crowd, consisting of lots of different people. Of course it includes his disciples, his immediate small group of chosen followers, but also the wider group of disciples, and it includes in the crowd his opponents, people who don't like him, who criticize him. But these people are also the future church, at least some of them, because within a couple of years, Jesus will be crucified and dead and resurrected, and some of these people will come to believe in him. They already do, I think, from seeing his miracles and hearing his teaching. So this is also addressed to the, the, uh, the people who will become the early church. And it's addressed to us. These are instructions on how to live as the followers of Jesus in the church and in the world. So in these verses, Jesus deals with our relationships with our fellow believers and with our opponents and with God and with everyone in our society. The first relationship he touches on in verses 1 to 5 is that of fellow believers. Judge not that you be not judged. And this is not forbidding the use of our common sense or our ordinary evaluation of day-to-day -day things. A colleague of mine who's a French speaker, found, he said he found the most difficult thing in the use of current English is Cockney rhyming slang, which he couldn't understand at all. So someone had told him to use his loaf. He said, what does that mean? And I said, in Cockney rhyming slang, loaf of bread is equivalent to head. Use your head. Use your common sense is what it means. He said, I'd never have understood that. I said, I know, that's very difficult. But Jesus is not saying, don't use your head, don't use your loaf, don't use your, your normal judgment. But he's saying that within the church we are not to have an attitude of fault-finding. We are not to approach other Christians determined to find something wrong, always carping or being negative and critical, especially not having regard to our own sins and errors, because to do that is hypocrisy. If we judge in a, a condemnatory way, having not repented of our own sins, and if we were to be judged by the same standards, 
we would be found guilty as well. That would be hypocrisy. And the measure that Jesus refers to here is uh, like an old-fashioned scales. I don't know if you know what scales are, but they are uh, an instrument with a bar at the top and normally two dishes balancing each other on either side. If you go to the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court, you'll find that there's a, if you can see it, right on the top of the building, there's a statue of justice. And justice is not only blindfolded to show that there is no prejudice, but in her hand she carries old-fashioned scales of these two dishes, showing that there will be an equal and fair balance in making decisions in the court. And in these days, the days of that time, if you measured something in terms of weight, you would put an unknown weight in one dish and then you'd measure the substance in the other dish that you were sending, whether it's fruit or vegetables or whatever it might be. But you can cheat. You can have scales that are false. You can use weights that are false. How do you know that a weight of 200 grams put in one side is the right... How do you know it's 200 grams? We rely on lots of things in our own lives. You go to a supermarket and the packet says, this is 100 grams, this is a litre, this is half a litre. How do you measure it? There are people in our society who are experts and who ensure that the things that are sold to us are done on a fair basis. If you have an ordinary type of car and you go to the petrol station and you fill up what you think is 20 litres, how do you know it's 20 litres? Somebody has measured it. But Jesus is saying that if you use false scales and you charge too much for an item, you are being unfair. And if we do that in our relationships, if we're not fair in the way we treat others, what we do to them will be the way God deals with us. Now this is not saying that there are not times when as a Christian we need to step in to correct somebody. But we're not to intervene in a judgmental way. And we need to have repented to God first of our own sins. Jesus uses the exaggerated picture here of a man with a log in his own eye trying to help someone remove a tiny speck from his. Of course, it's a ludicrous image. It's a grossly exaggerated image. It's like something from a comic book. If you really had a log in your eye, well, you wouldn't even be able to stand up. You'd be to the floor. But it makes the point all the more of our hypocrisy and being judgmental and having a judgmental attitude without the pain and penitence of coming to God ourselves first and confessing our own sins before we look at other people's. The only way we can help someone with a speck in their eye is first to be grieved and humbled over our own sin and to have God deal with that. And our attitude to others in removing a speck needs to be one of loving help, not carping criticism, not fault-finding. John Chrysostom, an early church minister and theologian from centuries ago, wrote about these verse, this verse in these words. He said, Correct him, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicine as a loving brother anxious to rescue and restore. And that's exactly right. That should be our attitude if we are called into those kind of things. It's not to say that when there is a problem we are called to stand back and mind our own business. 
we have to get ourselves straight first and any judgmental attitude is ruled out. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who have repented and got the log out of your own eye, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So the ultimate aim is restoration of the person we're talking to. And that rules out any kind of carping or uh, intense and determined criticism. The second relationship Jesus talks about is how we deal with those outside the church, people who don't yet believe. And we're told elsewhere, correctly, to speak the gospel whenever we can, and that's right. And we do speak the gospel, I hope, to everyone we meet, and we should do that. But we must be ready for the fact that not everybody will like it. And this probably uh, is lost a bit on us because we all maybe quite like dogs. There was a dog on the way in this morning with a very attractive dog, very charming dog. And maybe you like pigs as well, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with pigs, is there? But we have just to look at this in the context of that time. And dogs and pigs, to the Jewish people who were listening, were unclean animals. Jewish people referred to non-Jews as dogs. And these are not the very cuddly, cosseted pets that we might be thinking of today. And they're not even a working dog that you might have on a farm. These are feral dogs. These are wild dogs. Dogs who will attack you in a pack if you let them, if you give them half a chance. And why would you give those kind of dogs what is holy, possibly meaning meat from temple uh, sacrifice to the original hearers, holy food? And he says, why would you give your pearls? I'm not a lady, but if you're a lady, you might have a string of pearls. They're beautiful jewels. Why would you give them to pigs? The pigs won't like them. The pigs can't do anything with a string of pearls. You don't see pigs walking around with a string of, wearing a string of pearls, do you? They're not going to do that. They're going to try and eat them. They won't like them. And they may turn on you instead. The holy food and the pearls represent the gospel. They're holy. The gospel is a wonderful thing. It's of great value. And we're not to be contemptuous of non-Christians. We should present the gospel to all people in the best way we can. But there comes a time when you stop speaking the gospel if the person you're speaking to adamantly and repeatedly rejects it so that you can move on and proclaim the gospel to others so that you don't degrade the gospel. Of course, you never stop praying for them. But if someone rejects the gospel repeatedly and perhaps even turns on you, it's time to stop. Often this might not be a stranger, but it might be a family member or a friend. We may all have people we would love to come to Christ, but if they repeatedly reject the gospel and they do so with any kind of vehemence, it may be time to stop. There's an action in Matthew 10 that Jesus suggested, and elsewhere, of shaking off the dust from the feet or clothing. Those who reject the gospel are responsible for their rejection of it. You're not responsible. Your responsibility of proclaiming the gospel has ended. You're not responsible for their salvation. That's in the hands of God. And we are then called to prayer, but no more than that. 
The third relationship is with God. In verses 7 to 11. And this is about prayer. The means by which God has ordained that we come to him. Ask, seek and knock. And we are to come to God humbly and aware of our own shortcomings and needs. And we need to be persistent in prayer. To ask God to give us what we need. To seek the will of God with confidence in his loving action and provision for us. And this is very important teaching about prayer. And there are two promises and two lessons. The first promise is that God hears us. Jesus says it will be given, it will be found, it will be opened. And these statements are for all Christians. It doesn't say that only to some people will God give or provide or open. It says that God will give, provide and open to all his people who come to him in prayer. So prayer is not pointless. It is how God has ordained that we are to come to him. So the first promise is that God hears us. The second promise is that God gives good things. Jesus says that even sinful parents give good things. So how much more will the holy, ultimately good God give good things and these things in the story could look similar a loaf and a stone might superficially look the same clearly they're completely different you can't eat a stone as far as I know and the fish that he may have been referring to might have been an eel type fish and it might have looked like a snake clearly you can eat a fish I don't know if you can eat a snake maybe you can but the snake can bite you probably the fish can't they, look, they may look superficially similar, but they are totally different things, even harmful things. And even a sinful father wouldn't do that to his children. So God, who is infinitely good, will give good things, things that are infinitely better. So those are the two promises. God hears us and God gives good things. And there are two important lessons as well from this. The first lesson is that prayer is necessary. God wants us to ask him for things. And you might say, well, doesn't God know what we want and what we need already? Why do I have to come to him in prayer? Well, of course he does know. You might say, is God reluctant? Jesus says, how much more will he give us good things? God wants us to come to him, to ask him for these things. He wants us to come humbly and in recognition that he is the one who gives all these things and more. That coming to him in prayer is the basis of our relationship with him. So the first lesson is that prayer is necessary. The second is that prayer is productive. Prayer does something. Prayer achieves something. God works through prayer. People may seem to get along without prayer relying on what we may call the common grace of God, God's provision for everybody, of life, and many other things. But we have the special grace of God as his people. We have spiritual blessings. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, the equivalent passage, it says that God gives us the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And in expressing our dependence on God in prayer, 
God gives us not just our daily bread, all our practical needs, our physical needs, but through prayer, he meets our spiritual needs of forgiveness and redemption of the Holy Spirit. So two promises, God hears us and God gives good things. Two lessons, prayer is necessary and prayer does things. The fourth relationship in verse 12 is our relationship with all people. And Jesus sets a very high standard for us. There is a similar expression to this in Jewish tradition, but it was a negative expression. It is, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. To put it in simple, short English words. And it's passive, it says, you don't, you don't have to do anything. But if you do do something, don't do to them what you don't want them to do to you. I hope that makes sense. You'll be looking rather blank. It's the similar thing. But Jesus gives us a positive instruction. Jesus is implying that we take the initiative. The golden rule, as this is sometimes called, is very much like and refers to the second commandment of Jesus' summary of the law in Matthew 22. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're meant to be overt in our action. We're meant to reach out. We're meant to do things for other people's benefit. And that is the governing principle for Jesus' followers in their relationship with all people. So in these simple pictures, Jesus has set out the whole range of relationships for those who follow him. But you might ask, what does it matter how we lead our lives? They come and go pretty quickly, don't they? Do our relationships really matter in the end? Well, of course, how we behave matters to others in our lives, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues. And it matters to the church. The church is to be a city set on a hill. The church is to be salt and light. The church is to be an example of love and mutual care so that the world can see in it God's love and grace. And what we do, our behaviour, tells out our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God. How we conduct ourselves, what we do, how we behave, how we deal with our relationships, shows the world about our life with God as his church, as the people of the Lord Jesus. And in these last two verses, verses 13 and 14, Jesus talks about the two ways and this is the first of four statements, which I imagine you may come on to. Setting out the choice between life with God and life without God. Between life and death. Between salvation and destruction. I used to think that this picture was of the two ways. was about deciding to become a Christian. And that approach to the meaning of this picture is very simple saying that you can decide to follow Jesus, to go through the narrow gate into the hard way of life, or you can go along with the crowd, the majority, through the wide gate to the easy, broad way that leads to destruction. And everything in the pictures, in the picture, this image in these verses, is contrasted. The gates are different, the ways are different, the destinations are different. 
And this simple approach says, choose the narrow gate and the hard way, and you're there. You're saved. Job done. But before accepting this simple view of the picture, I think we need to stop and think. Part of the problem is it's a very familiar picture. When I was a young boy, which as my daughters would tell you was back in the 18th century, it wasn't quite that long ago, um, I won a school prize, and the prize that I won was a book, a very beautifully printed edition of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, printed by the publisher J.M. Dent. It had lots of pictures in it, very beautiful pictures. And one was a picture of what you might imagine this verse to be, a picture of a narrow gate, a man going up a hill through a narrow gate into the beautiful mountains beyond. And Pilgrim's Progress is a great book, a Bible-based book. But something derived from the Bible can easily bleed back into our interpretation of the Bible itself. And we need to be careful about that. In that children's picture, the narrow gate and then the steep way led immediately away from the broad way in the valley. The narrow gate and the going up the hill look very exciting. And the broad way and the valley look pretty boring, honestly. Choose the narrow gate, go up the hill, or stay in the boring valley. And other words and pictures may have had a powerful effect in our imagination with respect to this. There are various songs and hymns that have been thought to apply to this verse. There's an old hymn, um, But the steep and rugged pathway may we tread rejoicingly. Someone said, oh, it's about Matthew 7, verse 13. Well, I wonder. There's another one, an old chorus. When the road is rough and steep, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Oh, it's from Matthew 7, verse 13. Well, it's a great song. But is that what Matthew 7, verse 13 actually says? Because the words in the verse don't actually say all those things. And there are two main problems with that view. One is that it doesn't really, if you interpret it like that, it doesn't really fit here. Why in the middle of Jesus telling his future church about their relationships, how to live their lives as Christians, why would you go back to the beginning? Uh, that doesn't make any sense and talk about how you become a Christian. The second problem is it's bad theology. And by definition, Jesus as God doesn't do bad theology. How are we saved? We know that we are saved by grace alone. God calls us to faith in Christ, who died on the cross and paid the price of our sin. We don't contribute to our salvation in any way. Not 1%, not 0.1%, not 0.0001%, nothing. Our contribution is zero, 0%. We are not saved because we have made a decision. The old chorus was, I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, it's good in some ways, but we haven't, we haven't saved ourselves by our decision to follow Christ. The teaching of the Bible is that we are only saved by the grace of God. He has called us to faith in Jesus and has given us the ability to accept the call that he has made to us, to accept the free gift of salvation in Christ. It's 100% God's work. And we were talking earlier about assurance. If it isn't 100% God's work, how do you have assurance that God has saved you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So taking this picture 
as being about me making a decision to save myself, to follow the way to salvation, is problematic. So we need to look at this, this picture in these verses again. I don't know if you watch on television, there's a program called Lost Masterpieces. And there's another one called Fake or Fortune. They're, they're similar people, even the same people. And they're sort of art detectives. They take a picture usually and they try and discover what the picture is really like. And they have an expert who has a special cleaning substance and he has a thing like a big cotton bud and he'll dip it in the substance and rub the surface of the picture and the thing comes out brown or yellow and it's disgusting. But all the dirt that's been accumulated, all the ageing, decaying varnish on the surface of the, of the picture. Sometimes they use x-rays, that's even more exciting, to reveal the real picture, to find out what's underneath. And we, to need, we need to become detectives with regard to these verses because that simple explanation has some problems. We need to find out what the picture really is. We need to look at what the words actually say and what they don't say. We need to strip away the overpaint and the old varnish in our minds from other pictures and other words to find out what's really here. Well, it's clear there are two paths. There are only two paths, two ways. There isn't a third way. All humans go through one gate or another gate. All humans are on one way or another way. Do the ways diverge straight away, as in my children's picture, or do they go alongside each other? Does the hard or narrow way go up a hill or not? Well, the words don't tell us. It makes much more sense if they go along side by side. I think a better picture might be a view of a wide road or way and a little footpath in the grass alongside it. Do the actual words say that the hard way is steep or rough or that the easy way is level or smooth? They don't. They just say that one gate is narrow and the way is hard and the other gate is wide and the way is easy or broad and that each way has a different destination. The small gate is narrow and this word means like a small space. I don't know if you've been in a tiny corridor that's too small or a place where pe people have to get through a small little door or an opening and it's constrained, it's uncomfortable. You want to get through and get to somewhere wider. Someone said it means you can't take any luggage with you through the door. Well, maybe. It doesn't actually say that. It just says that it's narrow. It's not easy to get through. Someone said that Jesus is the narrow door because he is the only way to life. And he describes himself in John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9, as being the door of the sheepfold. Well, that's true. But it doesn't actually say that here. And to do that is to transfer an idea from somewhere else to a different context. I'm not sure that's always the right thing to do. I'm not sure that really fits here. And the way beyond the narrow gate is hard, which also includes an idea of narrowness. It means it's being constrained, being oppressed, something pressing you in. And by extension, it means it's full of trials and afflictions. Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 24, verse 9, when he says to his disciples, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, that's this word, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction, 
That's the same word as here. And anguish of heart and many tears. So the way is hard. It's constrained. It's full of tribulation and affliction. The other way is easy, which implies the opposite. It's broad. There are no restrictions. There are no constraints. There are no afflictions, no tribulations because of what you believe. And those on the hard way are few, we are told. Christian fellowship is fantastic. It's a great thing. But following Jesus is to be in the minority. Christians won't overcome because of strength of numbers, but only by the grace of God through all the challenges and trials of the hard way. So the two ways are not about making a one-off choice to become a Christian, which is not a correct view anyway, because God alone calls us and saves us by faith in Christ. We don't contribute anything at all to our salvation. The two ways are about what life is like as a Christian, choices you make in your relationships, things you have to face day to day, all the things that Jesus has been talking about to his followers, his disciples, his new church, his future church, the new people of God. The hard way is about what they will face and we will face as his followers. It's about what it means to follow him. The hard way is about being fair and loving to other Christians and not being harshly critical, even when we want to be. It's about telling out the gospel when nothing comes back except hostility and conflict or indifference. It's about praying to God even when you don't want to even when you don't seem to get the answers that you want. Praying persistently, maybe for years and years. It's about doing the right thing by everyone, even when you want to do your own thing, or it's against your own interests. It's about enduring unpopularity. It's about being in a minority. It's about enduring hardships. It's about feeling isolated and lonely and excluded and ostracized because of what you believe. The way is hard. It's hard to do God's will rather than seek the approval of other people. And when you look over at those many people on the broad way where it's easy with no constraints, people who seem to be successful without prayer, without God, people who have it all, people who please themselves and pay no regard to God, who do what they like that makes it harder still, doesn't it? And you might look across to those many people on the broad and easy way where there is no tribulation or affliction because of what you believe, and you might think that that looks better, that that life is better than the life on the hard way. But remember where it leads. And remember that God has enabled you to find and has opened to you the narrow gate and has placed you on the hard way. And that the hard way leads to life. Life in total fullness, eternal life. Fellowship with God beginning here on the hard way and perfected hereafter in the loving presence and tender-heartedness of God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to death that we might live. And a great encouragement, even if we find it hard and difficult on this hard way of the Christian life is that we are not alone. There are others walking with us, called out together by the grace of God into the fellowship of the church. 
Let it be a warm fellowship. Let our relationships with each other and our love for each other and our unity be an outstanding gospel witness to the world. Even more than that, we are not left as orphans, as Jesus has told us, but the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, walks with us and sustains us together through all that we may have to face on the hard way. In Christ we have the victory, and in Christ God enables us to persevere. And what we may not see moment by moment, day by day, is that the hard way is given by God for our good, for by it God remakes us in the image of Christ, and by it he will bring us at the end to the joyful and wonderful place where we will see Jesus face to face to share in the everlasting love of the triune God and in his eternal glory. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that the Christian life can be difficult, but that you have enabled us to go through the narrow gate, that you sustain us in our lives, even though the way is hard and there are many challenges, many frustrations, many afflictions, many tribulations. We pray that you would indeed sustain us. We thank you for our fellowship as your people. We thank you for the church. We pray that you would make us loving and warm to be able to show your love in our life together as your church. We pray that you'd make us faithful and effective as your witnesses and as your people, your light in the world. In Jesus' name we pray.